What God reveals on the mountain helps us to see clearly in the valley. What God reveals on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley. Can you try repeating after me? What God reveals on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley. Again, what God reveals on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley. What God reveals on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley. Brilliant. I'll sit down. No. Um, Yeah, coffee now. Um, I wonder whether you've had a moment like this in your life. Um, uh, I remember, there are a few illustrations I could give, but I remember um, when my first child, Ava, was born. It felt like a weighty moment. It was one of those moments that put everything else in life into its proper place. So when Ava was born, the, um, the emails that I had in my inbox didn't matter anymore. The sermon I still had to prayer seemed utterly irrelevant. The worries I, ha- I was consumed with the previous day meant nothing to me. Because somehow what had been revealed to me in that moment was so much more weighty and I knew carried so much more truth and importance for my life that all those other things were put into perspective. Can you see what I mean? For some of us, it comes in a moment of, of, of sadness, of difficulty, a, an illness or something, or the death of a relative that puts things into perspective. I was chatting with somebody just this week, and as we were walking along, because guys chat best not over a table, but walking side by side. Um, and we were walking along, and... Uh, and I asked him how life was, how, how's, how are things? He said, yeah, yeah, they're all right. I sensed they weren't. And I said, how's work? And he said, work, yeah, yeah, work's good, same old, same old, work's good. I said, um, okay. I just left silence a bit. And then he said, actually, not all's well at home. And he re- started telling me how his marriage was really struggling. And, uh, but what, something he said really struck me, and it's, speaks to today's passage as well, is he said, um, with reference to all the work and the busyness of work and just getting on with work and same old, he said, I feel like I've been sleepwalking. And if anything the last month has done is positive, if there's anything positive from it, it's because it's given me a kick up the backside and I've woken up to what's really important. We'll probably all have moments in our lives, perhaps you're thinking of it right now, where you think, Yeah, that was a moment where I realized what was important and there was something more important. And it's a bit like this. Let me give you an analogy. Because this is the problem that we have with those weighty moments. You you realize something and you think, yeah, that's so much more important. But then we let it slip. Uh, And we know it's a weightier moment. We long to be able to hold on to it. We feel like if we can hold on to the truth we've discovered in that moment, actually it will have a really positive impact on everything else in our lives. If what we've got on that mountain we can hold on to, it will help us in the valley. But the problem is, life crowds in, the inbox fills up, the stresses of the world come along. And whilst they might have been put in place as relatively small things at the time, unless we hold on to the big thing, all these things end up filling up our hands and outweighing the bigger truth that we know that should actually put all of these things in their place. Do you see what I mean? And um, in today's passage, for the disciples and for us, our eyes are opened, we are stopped from sleepwalking to some of the weightiest truths you could ever encounter in your life. 
that I would suggest if we, if we were able to fix our eyes, fill our view with these truths, hold on to these weightier things, everything else in life would be put in its proper place. But it's easier said than done. First of all, though, what, are the, um, what am I talking about? What are these weightier truths? Well, all through, um, grab your Bibles. Hope you've got your Bibles still um, on you or to hand. Turn back, if you've closed them, to page um, 1040, where our reading is for today. Um, and just clock some of the things, that the, the context of this passage, where, where we're coming from. So if you've got that page in your, just turn back a page. Um, all through chapter 9, this verse is reoccurring. This um, question is reoccurring. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Who is Jesus? So the first person to ask it is Herod, verse 9 of chapter 9. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. That's Jesus. Who is this? Jesus then asks the same question of Peter in verse um, 20 of chapter 9. Glance across the other column. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus goes on to say that, Okay, you've got it, uh, but the Christ of God, he needs to suffer and die. This is the path. People see this section, by the way, verse 18, as the hinge point in Luke's gospel. Everything before is kind of Galilee ministry and getting the disciples and everything else. Everything from here, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem and to the cross, appropriate as we approach Easter. And so from this point where Peter acknowledges that he's Christ the God, Jesus is like, yeah, and this is what it means. I'm heading to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And in that context, we come up to the transfiguration. The question again is asked, who is this in the cloud as bright as lightning, chatting with two people who've been dead for centuries? Who is this? And the divine voice says, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And there's some fascinating things. On the surface, this passage uh, seems nuts. <laughs> there's lightning, someone shining like lightning. There's two dead people just casually chatting to Jesus. Um, and there's this cloud that suddenly descends. I kind of think uh, it's no wonder. Have a look at verse 36. Um, when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they'd seen. I'm not surprised because they probably would have been locked up if they'd said, yeah, we just went up the mountain with Jesus and he was shining like lightning. And Moses and Elijah rocked up and there was this cloud that suddenly descended as soon as Peter started speaking to Jesus. would be like, right. I'm not surprised they kept it to themselves for a little while. But actually beneath what seems just like nuts... There's nuggets of gold. Because what God reveals on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley. Say it with me. What God reveals on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley. He reveals weighty things. And the reason I use that illustration is twofold, those illustrations. Is um, when you dig beneath, you find that the word that's used for glory or glorious in this passage can also be translated weighty. Things that really matter those heavy things. And there's this fascinating verse, verse 32. Have a look at verse 32 with me. It says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at this passage, the transfiguration in Mark and in 
uh, John, not John, Mark, and in, what's the other one? Matthew, thank you. Um, if you look at Mark and Matthew, just testing, um, uh, it doesn't mention that they're sleepy. It mentions that they were face down in worship and that they were terrified. It doesn't mention that they were sleepy. Now, either you're alert and you're terrified and you're face down or you're sleeping. Which one is it? I think Luke's trying to get to something deeper. I think he's trying to say, because the word is used this way and elsewhere in Scripture, that it was like they were sleepwalking in their understanding still of Jesus until they were fully awakened by the glory that was before them. And then what they saw then put into place everything else. Do you remember my friend who said he felt like he was sleepwalking until this had given him a kick up the bum? Today we get a kick up the bum, as it were, from Scripture. There are three things that I think are revealed that are weighty things. For for some of us, it will be a specific one of these that's important. Three things that I think are revealed. First of all, Jesus is God. Say that with me. Jesus is God. The second thing we're going to look at is Jesus loves us. Say that with me. Jesus loves us. Just checking you're awake. Um, And the third thing is that Jesus is our saviour. Can you say that with me? Jesus is our saviour. Jesus is God. Jesus loves us. Jesus is our saviour. Jesus is God. This passage reveals without any shadow of a doubt who Jesus is. There are lots of people, Herod and lots of people in London, who would like to put Jesus in the category of uh, nice guy, good teacher, some good stuff to learn from him. They wouldn't want to say he's a nutter and he's a deceiver. They wouldn't want to say that. He's clearly had a huge influence on history and probably quite a good guy. But equally, they wouldn't want to say, and Herod wouldn't want to say, and your average Londoner might not want to say, he's God. And therefore deserves not just my inspiration that I'm inspired by him, he deserves my worship. That's why the disciples worship in response to this. Because this passage leaves us in no doubt. Jesus is shining like lightning. He's chatting to Moses and Elijah. This cloud descends. Does anybody know why the disciples are so terrified by the cloud? Verse 34, while he was speaking, whilst Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Why were they afraid? The word could be terrified. Why were they terrified? Does anybody know why is the cloud significant to them? What are they thinking is happening there? Anybody? No, not that they can't see. The cloud, they understand, they know, is the very presence of God. Uh, We know they're linking it to Old Testament stuff about the presence of God because Peter starts talking about setting up three shelters. The word could be tents or tabernacles. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, uh, the tabernacle was the tent where God resided, basically, on their exodus. Uh, when they left, um, and hold on to Exodus because we're going to come back to that. Luke weaves that in as well. But there's this tabernacle, and that was where the, the Holy of Holies was. And it was where the very presence of God was meant to be. And there's this passage where basically the, it was like a cloud descended on the Holy of Holies. And the people of Israel knew that was the very presence and glory of God. And you couldn't go closer, you'd die. It was holy. Holy ground. And so this cloud descends, and they're probably thinking, I'm going to die! What's going on? This is the very presence of God. 
And as it lifts, what's revealed to them is just Jesus. It's almost like Luke is saying, God is saying, this is my son. This is God. Glory goes, he is my glory. He is the tabernacle. He is the presence of all of my glory and the fullness of who I am in human form. Jesus. He's God. And we have a choice as we walk through Luke's gospel. We, we can't just treat Jesus as inspiring, a great moral teacher. Either Luke is a nutter, and he's talking about someone who's even greater nutter, or he's God. Uh, a great New Testament theologian called N.T. Wright um, put it this way, this dilemma that we face. He said, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest, weightiest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense. Most of us are unable to cope with saying either of these things. And so we condemn ourselves to living in a shallow, sleepy world in between. Do you see? He's saying this is such a weighty thing. It is so important. You can't dismiss it easily. Jesus is God. It's the first thing. Second thing that's revealed is that Jesus loves us. And I love this about this passage. And I love this about Jesus. He could have stayed in heaven in his glory. But he didn't. He chose to come to earth, to our mess and our pain and our brokenness to heal it. Here we see a picture of Jesus in glory surrounded by Moses and Elijah, bright as lightning. But he doesn't stay on the mountaintop. Verse 37, the next day when they came down from the mountain, and in every gospel account of the transfiguration, the next thing is this demonized boy who he steps down into that broken and hurting situation and confused situation and he heals it. This is a picture, do you see, of the gospel for us. Jesus doesn't just stay in his place of glory. Sometimes we like to stay in those places. Do you notice how Peter says, it'd be good for us to stay here. Let's build some tents. And it says he doesn't know what he was saying. Uh, We sometimes will go to New Wine. I hope you join us at New Wine or the church weekend away. And we might have, on those occasions, a, a mountain experience. We experience something of the closeness of the glory, of the weighty truths about life, the glory of God. We see Jesus as he really is. And we kind of want to stay there forever. But God, what God reveals to us on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley. We can't stay on the mountaintops. Most of our lives are spent in a valley in some way, face or shape or form, facing some of the troubles and the anxieties and the stresses and the illnesses and the deaths and the everything else that we experience in the valley, the demonized whatever situations. What God reveals on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley. And what we see here as well is that Jesus loves us. He didn't stay in the place of glory, but came low to earth. And note as well, he comes down into the mountain to head to another mountain with a cross on it. And that brings us to the last thing. Jesus is our saviour that this reveals. So it is profound and we're meant to dig deeper into why it is that Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. Um, And um, 
we're meant to dig deeper, and we know we're meant to dig a little bit deeper, because the word for departure, again, have a look at your Bibles, and look at verse 30, 30 to 31, I'll read. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, interesting word, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. I said that this was a pivot point in Luke's gospel where he's going from ministry in Galilee and setting his face to Jerusalem. And here we have the great lawmaker, Moses, who led the people of Israel on the first exodus, freeing them from the slavery of the Egyptians to lead them to the promised land. And this word for departure can be translated exodus. That's what it means. It means exodus. So when we see Moses and we see Exodus that close together, what we're meant to understand, Luke's saying, what you're meant to understand is this Jesus that Moses, Moses and Elijah have come alongside to point him to his future, his departure, his Exodus. And we're meant to go, oh, where Moses, this is the promised saviour, this is the promised Messiah. Where Moses led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land, Jesus is going to lead his people from slavery to sin to eternal life, to the promised land with God. This is the second exodus. We're going to go, oh, his exodus. Moses, exodus, I see. Because he's heading to Jerusalem, to a cross. Not only is he leading his people into freedom, out of slavery to sin, but of course, he's the lamb that's sacrificed. If you remember the story of the Exodus, the, the Israelites were asked to sacrifice a lamb at the Passover meal, before the Passover meal, and the blood went on the wood outside their house. And that meant when judgment passed, they were saved. Exodus, Moses, Jesus, leading us out of slavery, but also on a mountain in the distance to be the lamb who sacrificed the blood on the wood that we'd be free and forgiven and that judgment would pass over us. Do you see? Do you see what the richness underneath here that Luke's trying to point us to? Jesus is God. Jesus loves us. And Jesus is our saviour. And, and imagine what that would have been like for Jesus. He's a human being like you and I. And here has the, the, the writer of the law, the first five books of the Bible, Moses, the great prophet Elijah, representing all the prophets, saying, yeah, this is what it's all pointing to, Jesus. This is the path you have to tread. When you come off this mountain, you're going to have to walk through the valley and up another one. This is what it's going to look like. Yeah, you're right. You're going to need to die. The voice of God coming in to affirm and encourage him like he did at his baptism. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Imagine what it would have been like for Jesus. He knows the cost that's before him. He could have stayed on the mountain. He could have stayed in glory. He chooses to come down into the valley. He's God, but he loves us. And so he's our saviour. Do you see? I'd suggest... Those are pretty weighty things to help put everything else in life in its place. 
And I'd suggest if we, um, I'd suggest if you're here this morning and you've never seen Jesus like that, then perhaps what Luke is trying to say, and what I'm trying to say, what Luke is trying to say is you're sleepwalking. And it's an interesting thing when you're sleepwalking or when you're sleeping. Imagine when you're having a nightmare. You're having a nightmare in your sleep. Say you're falling off a cliff or something like that. It seems very real and it seems very scary. And there's all sorts of things going on. But actually then, you know, your wife kicks you or something <laughs> and says, wake up, wake up. You wake up, you snap up, you wake up into reality and you realize it's okay. That those fears and anxieties you had were actually just a distant, fuzzy dream. There's a greater reality you've woken up to that's put that in its place. I think Luke's suggestion is that if you haven't seen Jesus like this as your God who loves you and who's your saviour, then you're sleepwalking. And you'll be anxious about so many things and you'll be overwhelmed with worries and everything else in life. But when you see this, it honestly will help put everything else in its place. But as I said at the start, and so I'm coming into land, the trouble is how do we hold on to those weighty things? When life comes in and pain comes in and issues come in and the inbox fills up and the bank balance looks dodgy, how do we hold on to the more weighty things in life about Jesus that help define everything else and put them in their place? How do we do that? Well, we're given actually some really helpful hints. Three hints as we come into um, land on this passage. One is based in the transfiguration, but it's kind of not explicitly here. And that is that the disciples respond in worship. I wish you could have seen, as I saw, and she's going to be slightly embarrassed that I'm saying this, but I wish you could have seen Stella worshipping when we were worshipping earlier. She didn't care who was around. She had filled her gaze with the splendor of the king, clothed in majesty, worshipping her saviour and her God. When we worship, that's the appropriate response to this God that's being revealed on the mountain. What God reveals on the mountain helps us to see clearly in the valley. When we see him, we shouldn't be inspired by him, we should worship him. Worship helps fix our gaze on the weightier things in life. That's the first thing. Other two things, little hints at the end at, in verse 35 um, and 36. And this is where the plug for groups comes as well. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. If we want to be able to stay awake, if we want to be able to hold on to the weightier things in life, we need to keep listening to him and to Jesus and not just to the world and everything else that will crowd in. Otherwise, you will begin to lose sight of the most important thing. You need to listen to him. Listen to him, Jesus says. Base your life on everything that he says about who you are, about the world. It's true, because he's God. Remember, he loves you, and he's going to die for you. Listen to him. We need to listen to the word of God on a regular basis. Notice also, in the verse I kind of made light of a little bit earlier, The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they'd seen. But they kept it to themselves. It could be translated, they discussed amongst themselves. Jesus didn't just take Peter. He didn't just take John. He didn't just take James. He took Peter, James, and John. 
And they continued to discuss this together. What does this mean? How do I understand this? What difference should this make in the valley to my life? And I want to suggest that on Easter Sunday, we are relaunching our groups, which are these key discipleship communities at the heart of our church. They're where you get to meet, make friends, meet God, and learn how to live life better. Make friends, meet God, learn how to live life better. They're about community, about walking together through life. It's the make friends bit. They're about meeting God. They're about holding on to these weightier things and listening to him. Meet God. And they're about learning to live life better. Because what God reveals us on the mountain helps us see clearly in the valley and live life better. Uh, it's, it's a neat little plug for that notice that somehow got weaved in because I have oversight over the groups. I don't know how that happened. Um, but they're re- being relaunched on Easter Sunday. There should be a group for you that fits in with you and that would be a blessing to you. If you haven't been in one ever, give it a go. Why not give it a go? You're just signing up for, you, you sign up online, you sign up on church app, you sign up at the back of church on Easter Sunday and for the couple of weeks following that. Uh, and it, you're not signing your life away, you're just signing up for that term. You're just saying this term I might show up. You're not, you're not committing to five, ten years and you think, help. Um, just give it a go. See if it helps you hold on to the weightier things in life so that you can live life better in the valley. Uh, perhaps you've been part of a small group for ages. Uh, perhaps um, it, you've let it wane or let it slip. Can I uh, urge you to reinvest? And if there isn't a group for you, then have a chat with me, because you might be able to start one. Um, and that might be a great way, actually, for you to grow, if you've been a Christian for a long time, to lead and to invest in the discipleship of others. It's proven as one of the main ways that people who've been a Christian for a certain length of time continue to grow and don't just stall. So have a chat with me about that. Worship. He's God. Listen to him through his word. And do it with others. Because they'll help you see stuff that you haven't seen. They'll help remind you of the weighty things. And it also means that when life goes not so well, you've got some people traveling with you. <laughs>